I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, new technologies like AI are advancing so rapidly, far beyond our understanding and comprehension. So does the mystery of how technology operates impact our ideas of faith? We have this long tradition of, you know, speculating about this sort of idea of a consciousness that is higher than ours that we've traditionally called God. And now that there is an intelligence that is above us emerging through technology, I think it's really easy to make that comparison. And later, how spirituality is being renewed and reshaped by modern technology. The default answers uh, an Alexa or a Siri will come with, sorry, I can't answer that. And even if they direct you to search results, well, some considerations went into the selection of what those results are. Technology, humanity, and what it means to believe in something greater than ourselves. All ahead on Life Examined. Our interactions with new technologies seem to be changing on a daily basis. Home assistants like Alexa or Siri, boosted by advances in artificial intelligence or AI, have changed the way we shop, drive, cook, sleep, and even question. On a deeper level, modern technology may be filling a spiritual void. Big questions about our identity, the relationship between mind and body, free will, and death which were once answered by theologians, are now absorbed by AI in tech. So has AI changed the way we tackle deeper questions about religion, humanity, and faith? What does it mean to be human in a technological society? These are some of the deeper questions author Megan O'Giblin tackles in her latest book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology Metaphor and the Search for Meaning. O'Giblin is a leading essayist on questions of faith and technology. And she joins us now. Megan O'Giblin, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks, Jonathan. I, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit before we dive into these interesting subjects. Um, you've become a leading essayist on technology, among other subjects. But but I was fascinated to learn that you um, were somebody, I, I get the sense, that grew up in a fairly religious household. You attended a Bible college. Can you tell me a little about where you come from, your interest in some of these big questions? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I grew up um, in an evangelical Christian family. Um, I would describe our worldview as fundamentalists. So we believed, you know, that the Bible was the word of God, that, you know, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament were literal descriptions of things that were going to happen, um, possibly within our lifetimes. So For much of my childhood, I believed, you know, that we were getting close to the second coming of Christ, this idea that, you know, Christ was going to return, the dead were going to rise, um, we were going to be raptured and live forever uh, with God uh, in heaven for eternity. And so it was a very, um, it, it was a strain of evangelicalism that was very much focused on the future. I would say. And um, I ended up going to, uh, when I was 18, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is a it's a small Christian college um, that it's very old. It was fo- founded by Dwight Moody, who is um, sort of famous 19th century evangelist. And I went there to study theology. Um, and while I was there, I kind of, I, I started to have a lot of doubts about the whole worldview that I was raised in and really read portions of the Bible for the first time in depth that I hadn't read before or hadn't really thought about. And so I, a lot of the things I was struggling with 
are things that, you know, Christians have struggled with, um, both, you know, people who continued to be believers and people who have left the faith um, for centuries. So the problem of hell, you know, why, why does hell exist? Uh, that was another thing that we took very literally. Um, and the problem of evil, why is there so much suffering in the world? And um, the answer that I was given as a theology student, be, because of the particularly narrow type of theology we were studying was, well, these are not things for us to understand. God's ways are higher than our ways. Um, this is something that transcends human understanding. And I found that really unsatisfying. And, um, you know, after my second year there, I ended up leaving the college. Um, I dropped out of the program and ended up um, a few years later sort of renouncing my faith and identifying as an atheist. I know that one book that was really important to you when I, I believe you were working as a bartender, kind of figuring your life out, was Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. That that really hit you pretty hard, didn't it? Yeah, I had a really, um, really intense relationship with that book in retrospect. Um, I was, yeah, I was working at a bar in Chicago at the time, was sort of feeling very lost in my life, having, you know, left Christianity and... Uh, a friend of mine gave me this book, uh, The Age of Spiritual Machines. It's sort of a landmark text of transhumanism, which I didn't know anything about at the time. It, this is a movement that arose in Silicon Valley um, around the late 80s, early 90s. And it's a very um, sort of techno-utopian view of the future, this idea that we're going to use technology to help us as humans evolve into sort of the next level of humanity or what they called post-humanity. So they were very interested in these questions of, you know, like bionics and nanotechnology. How can we use technology to possibly make ourselves immortal? Um, Ray Kurzweil, um, who is, he went on to be, he's was um, sort of a leader now at Google, head of engineering, I believe. But he, um, at the time when he wrote this book, he, wrote a lot about um, digital resurrection, this idea that we could even maybe resurrect the dead through technology someday. And I was fascinated by this. I don't think I recognized at the time what the appeal was exactly to me, but basically this book was promising all of the things that I had grown up believing would happen supernaturally, you know, so the eternal life, the resurrection, but it was promising it through technology. So, um, there's, you know, it wasn't until many years later that I recognized sort of the parallels between this worldview and uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was really, um, I don't know if I would say a life-changing uh, decision for me. I had already had a lot of sort of major disruptions to my life, but you know, this experience of reading reading that book really opened my eyes to technology for the first time, which is not something I thought a lot about before. Um, so that was sort of my gateway into thinking through some of these questions. Yeah, and it just, as you talked about where you came from, and then suddenly reading this text, it seemed to me that you were confronted with all these really big ideas all over again, but just um, through a different uh, through a different lens, that of technology. I mean, just as you said, this idea of can we as humans live forever? Well, there's a biblical interpretation, but maybe there's also a technological interpretation, right? I mean, that stuff seemed to be germinating in you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very ancient human desire, you know. I mean, for centuries, we believed that we would be immortal. Like, mm. I think, it, you know, it wasn't until fairly recently that, um, you know, in the course of human history that we've sort of started taking into account our mortality. And, you know, I, I sort of, I feel like my experience was in many ways a microcosm of that sort of historical disenchantment. You know, I went from believing in these things to very quickly not Mm-hmm. believing in them. Whereas um, the trauma that sort of resulted from that shift in the larger culture, I think, has been more subtle and much slower. But I think that those longings are still there. I think that these, you know, technological visions tend to be very appealing because they are speaking to something that's very, very old and very human. Can you say more about that specifically, that, that these questions are ones that, that we've been asking for thousands of years? Can, can you go further into that? Yeah, I think there's an interesting paradox because we, we tend to think about technology as very new. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, whenever you're reading technological criticism, there's a lot of um, sort of bombastic language about innovation and everything is unprecedented. And... Um, a lot of the questions that new technologies are raising are very old questions. Um, and you see this particularly in artificial intelligence and um, sort of these emerging technologies where they're raising questions about free will. You know, what, what makes us free? Uh, wh- where is the division between the mind and the body? You know, why do we have consciousness? Um, sort of these really fundamental questions that have been crucial, not only to philosophy, but to theology before that. And um, and so I, I think, you know, as somebody who, as I got more interested in technology and started reading more broadly about these conversations, I kept coming across these religious metaphors um, and sort of these these religious ideas that were bringing me back to things I had studied in in Bible school. Um, A a lot of times when people are talking about the most sophisticated artificial intelligence systems, they'll describe it as being like a God, you know? So there was um, a sort of landmark event in machine learning in 2016 when AlphaGo, which was a algorithm created by Google, it beat the world champion at Go, which is mm. uh, it's a Chinese board game that's like exponentially more complex than chess. And people were amazed at how super intelligent this machine was. And uh, several people who were there at the event compared it. They said it's like a god. And I think, you know, as we, we have this long... Um, tradition of, you know, speculating about this sort of idea of a consciousness that is higher than ours that we've traditionally called God. And now that there is an intelligence that is above us in many ways, emerging through technology, I think it's really easy to make that comparison. That's fascinating because I don't think I'd ever actually thought of the idea of, of AI or a supercomputer in 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 terms of of something that is godlike or or divine, right? I mean, I I think of it as smart or or complex, but but I think perhaps at, at the root of the idea of creating this this all-knowing machine, there is a question of a godlike uh, substance or person in, in all of that, I guess, right? Yeah, you see it. You see it especially with a lot of um, the newer 
advanced algorithms, which are sometimes called deep learning algorithms, they it, it, it's amazing the scale that they um, can sort of understand the world at, which is far larger and more expansive than we can. You know, we have so much data right now that we've collected. Um, and it's getting to the point where the human mind alone can't make sense of it. It's just too much. Um, even, you know, our theories about the world start to break down when you start dealing with data of that scale. And so a lot of the machines that are able to process data on that scale, um, they're black box technologies. So what that means is that they've evolved their own ways of coming up with solutions and predictions about the data that they're fed. And the people who made them don't actually know how they work. So um, there's some sort of, you know, we know what the input is and we know what the output is, but there's whatever happens in between, how they reach their conclusions um, is a mystery. And they're being, these systems are now being implemented into the justice system. Um, they help judges make decisions about sentencing. They help police departments decide which neighborhoods to patrol. And a lot of times what the humans in those um, institutions are forced to do is sort of take these outputs on faith without knowing why the machine made the recommendation that it did. And there's a really strong parallel for me there with the particular type of theology that I studied, um, which is sort of the God that you find in the book of Job who refuses to answer for himself. You know, when Job says, why, why am I suffering? Why are all of these you know, tragedies befalling me. And uh, God's answer is, well, who, you know, who are you with your puny human mind? You can't understand the world the way that I do. Um, mm. And it was interesting when, when these algorithms um, first were sort of entering the public consciousness in 2016, 2017, several different critics made allusions to the book of Job which was a book that I struggled with um, when I was studying theology. So I, I found that fascinating. Does data, in a sense, take the role of the kind of ineffable God or the thing we just now blindly decide to believe in? Like in the case of handing these machines over to what, you know, the justice system? Can you, can you go a little further into that or help us understand that? Yeah, um, I, I think that, you know, for... You know, since the Enlightenment, we've been under this paradigm of, of humanism, which is this, you know, idea that we know what's best for ourselves, um, both as a species and as individuals. Uh, it's a very individualistic worldview where, you know, if you're making a decision about who to vote for, say, or who to marry, um, there's sort of this understanding, you know, going back to, I think you see it most clearly in Rousseau, that... Um, you know, you're capable of looking inside of yourself and coming up with the answer to those types of questions. And what's shifting now, and some critics have, have um, talked about this, Yuval Harari is somebody who's written a lot about this, and he calls, he, he's arguing that basically humanism is being displaced by dataism, which is this idea that instead of looking to ourselves and our moral and ethical arguments as humans to sort of come up with solutions, we are looking to data instead to solve those questions for us. And it's a, you know, it's, it's, if that is what's happening, which I think there's a lot of evidence that it is, it's a major shift in 
you know, how we're thinking about the world and what our role as humans are. There's this idea now that there's some, possibly some higher truth that we can't understand uh, in the way that we used to simply by observing the world, that we have to rely on this data that is really baffling in a lot of ways to our naked human minds. And then we have to rely on machines to sort of process it and explain it to us. How do you feel about that? <laughs> it's frightening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's frightening. I mean, to me in particular, because it, it brings back all of these these problems that I dealt with in Bible school. Um, I, I think that it, again, and, and I can see why it's appealing too, because it, it's an incredible burden for us as humans to have to make those decisions. And it's becoming more and more of a burden as the world becomes more complex. You know, just deciding you know, what kind of yogurt to buy or something. Yeah. There's so many, you know, you can you exactly. spend a whole day doing research about this. And, you know, it does seem really nice sometimes to just think, oh, well, why can't I just have, you know, a super intelligent AI sort of dictate my whole life and tell me what to do? And, you know, again, I think we have a long history of humans as sort of deferring to these, um, you know, outside systems or sort of religious um, commandments to help organize our life and give our life structure. And I think a lot of people in our growingly secular landscape have a real hunger for something of that sort. I feel it in myself. I feel um, that there's certain things that are very attractive about that, but I also find it, it frightening. I think it also speaks to this, this human part of us that, that just has a hard time sitting with unanswerable questions or sitting with doubt or sitting with the unknowable, which is what is what's so beautiful, but also so difficult about you know a lot of the great spiritual or world traditions, or maybe more the contemplative side of sides of those, in which um, we we don't know, and there's a certain acceptance of that. And I think that right there's something that it, it's it's hard to be with those questions, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, and. I mean, in a way, that's a question that I had to come to terms with while I was writing this book, because, I mean, in a way, that was my frustration when I was having doubts about my faith um, in Bible school. It was this idea of like, well, why can't you give me answers? I, I need answers to these questions. And if there aren't answers, then, you know, this isn't a viable worldview. And, you know, once I left and started reading about science and technology, it turns out there are a lot of holes in that worldview as well. You know, we don't know what consciousness is. Like nobody in science knows, they can't explain why we have first person experience, why we have thoughts and beliefs, which is really, really fundamental to, you know, how we experience the world, but it's, we haven't been able to explain it through an objective scientific perspective. And, um, you know, there's a lot of problems emerging in quantum physics that suggest that the world is very, very bizarre on its most fundamental level. You know, that particles can be two places at once. You know, that that the world changes depending on whether it's observed or not. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, in writing more about those questions and going kind of down those rabbit holes in the book, I, I realized that, you know, wow, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, faith that is, you know, required of us in the, even in these very scientific fields, there's things that we don't know. We, there's a lot of uncertainty and, um, 
You know, I do think that there's virtue to being able to sit with uncertainty and doubt because I think the alternative to that is sort of deferring to wishful thinking or trying to fill those gaps with something that we would like to be true, which we maybe don't have evidence for. Mm. In all these kind of important deep questions, I think there's also some just some fun sections of this book. I mean, you start writing about your experience with a $3,000 AI dog, Ibo, right? Um, yeah. And in what that's like and what, what, how does that fill you and for what reason? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that part of the book? Yeah, um, I was really curious about these robot dogs. It's, Sony's been making them since the 90s, the Ibo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically just wrote to Sony and asked if I could have a loan, uh, a loaner dog basically to live with for a few weeks and they sent it to me. So I, I had this dog in my house um, and they're remarkably intuitive machines they you know they have sensors all over their bodies they use facial recognition voice recognition so you can train them the way that you would train a dog and they res- they're very responsive to humans so um i am not like a big animal person but <laughs> you know I, I have never um owned a pet since i've been living on my own but i like immediately started to bond with this animal um, uh, with, with the, I mean, again, I'm calling it an animal. It was a, a, a robot, but I, I started to treat it like a dog. I talked to it the way that people talk to their pets. Um, I felt bad after a while turning it off at night. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. It sort of made me think about a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, um, forms of what's called social AI, these systems like Alexa or Siri, where we interact um, with them the way that we would interact with a human. And they're able to tell jokes and, you know, make sort of ironic quips now and then, and they do things that make them seem very much like they're alive and conscious. And um, I think the the lines about, like, where the human begins and ends are getting very blurry. Um, or where, for that matter, where an animal and a machine, you know, where's where's the clean line between... Though Sony, uh, on their website, they said that the Ibo has real emotions and instinct. <laughs> interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and how, how do you prove that it doesn't, you know, it raises a lot of interesting questions. What was your takeaway spending the, the three weeks with that, that AI dog? What, what did it do to you? Um, I guess I became aware of how prone we are as humans to anthropomorphize, um, which you know, I, I think this is something that we've evolved to do. We have, you know, as humans, we have theory of mind. So we're able to imagine that other people have minds like we do. And it makes it very easy for us to predict other people's behavior and to interact socially with other people. But we tend to over apply it like a lot of things that we've evolved to do. And so, you know, you see this, you know, when people kick a photocopier or something because it's not working or people give a name to their car. Um, We treat inanimate objects all the time as though they're alive in some sense or even as though they're human. And this is really, you know, deep in our DNA. And it it happens even when you intellectually know that, that the thing is not alive, right? So like I knew that the Ibo dog was a machine but for all intents and purposes, I was treating it as though it were a real dog. 
Um, and people anthropomorphize their pets too. You know, they speak to them and, um, you know, attribute human qualities to them. And uh, I think that this is becoming really tricky uh, as AI develops and particularly as they develop in language skills. There's been a lot of advances lately in natural language processing and these algorithms that can speak and write at a very convincing level that almost seems like it's human. A big part of this book is is exploring metaphor, and in particular, how we now grasp um, to these ideas of technological metaphors. We think of, of the brain as a system or, um, or processing speeds uh, in terms of how quickly we think or don't think. I, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how it seems that this is becoming so ever-present in our lives? The thing that I was interested in is this idea of how metaphors become more literal over time. So, you know, when this metaphor first emerged, sort of, it's called the computer metaphor, the brain-computer metaphor. When it first emerged in the 1940s, um, it was common to put certain terms in quotation marks. So when you were talking about computers learning or understanding, those terms would be put in quotes to indicate that they were figurative language. Um, today, it's really rare to see those terms in quotes. It's sort of those are considered straightforward descriptions of what the machines are doing. And I think that there is a tendency, not just in technology, but, you know, in I see it in religion, too, where something starts as a metaphor and then it sort of becomes such a part of the intellectual fabric of that worldview that people start to forget that it's a metaphor and they take it literally. Yeah. Um, and this was the case with, weirdly enough, with the, with the resurrection in sort of Judeo-Christian uh, theology, which I read about in the book. You know, it started off as this, this idea that the dead were going to rise at the end of time. It initially was just this metaphor about sort of the restoration of the promised land. It was a metaphor about Israel. Um, sort of being restored. And over time, people started to take it literally as a description of something that was going to happen in the future, that the dead were literally going to rise. So I think, you know, my own background sort of seeing that tension between the literal and the metaphorical in religion, I, I see a lot of the same thing happening in conversations about technology, where we lose sight of what is, what is a useful mental construct and what is actually happening. Absolutely. And then if you make the comparison to these technological metaphors, essentially, you know, we become not just a metaphor of the machine, but we become the machine, right? I mean, that that seems to be where the metaphor takes us. We become an operating system yeah. after a long period of time. This is the tricky thing about metaphors is that they they work both ways, you know? So, um, you know, if you start saying that a computer is like a mind, then you eventually are going to start thinking of your mind like a computer. And as those, again, as the metaphors become more, more literal, it becomes easier and easier to think that your brain is actually a computer. Um, and, you know, there's, again, I think that this metaphor is useful, but it's missing something really important, which is consciousness. You know, we have machines that, um, you know, are very advanced right now that can do uh, functionally a lot of the same things as human intelligence. You know, they can play chess, they can fly drones, they can identify cats in photos. 
but they don't have any interior experience. They don't know what a cat is, you know, mm. they're, they're working off of data and very abstract numerical patterns. And so I think that in a way, as AI becomes more advanced, it really sheds light on this crucial question of like, well, what is that? Why, why do we have, you know, why do we have this theater of experience in our minds? And uh, why, you know, that is something that I think right now at least makes us different from machines. I've been speaking with Megan O'Giblin, essayist, columnist, and author of God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's been really wonderful. In just a minute, we'll be back with more about the intersections of technology and religion. Stay with us for that. Also, it's KCRW's good old-fashioned pledge drive, and it's pretty simple. You give, and KCRW plays on. We're taking it back to the basics, and you know how it goes. A few times a year, we ask you to step up for public radio. It's easy. Just give us a call. Your support means so much to us. It also keeps us running. Member support is KCRW's largest single source of funding, and that's where you come in. Go to kcrw.com slash give or 1-800-600-KCRW. And thank you. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Megan O'Giblin express concerns about what it means to be human in a technological society and how technology changes both religious and intellectual thought. So how does the tech sector, with all those well-paid engineers and coders in Silicon Valley, view their influential role? What ethics and standards are in place, especially now as technology influences pretty much everything? In the New York Times article called Can Silicon Valley Find God?, Writer Linda Kinsler explains the challenges for the tech sector when it comes to answering deeper questions about faith, humanity, and the meaning of life. Kinsler is a writer and PhD candidate in the rhetoric department at UC Berkeley. Linda Kinsler, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me. So Linda, as part of your reporting, you joined this research group um, in which you had an opportunity to ask devices like Alexa some of these really big life questions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so what happened was I met a AI researcher who was formerly um, an engineer at Microsoft named Shannon Butcher, who was conducting a research study on how our interactions with our devices, whether that be, you know, an Alexa or Siri or even just text messages, was altering our relationship to our spirituality, to our souls, and also to our past, to our memories. And I thought it was just this kind of fascinating acknowledgement of the ways 
in which technology is altering how we think, how we are, how we relate to others. Um, and so I asked if he would allow me to be one of his research sub subjects. And uh, one day I sat before my computer screen and he recorded me as I interacted with um, various personal assistants, uh, having essentially conversations with them mm. about the big questions of life. You know, is the golden rule sufficient? You know, is there a God? Uh, what happens when we die? Those kinds of things. Right. So, so tell us what you found as you began to ask some of these big questions. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. I think that I was really paying attention to the language that the machines were responding with. And, you know, it's interesting because they're all pre-programmed. Um, they've all been designed to accord with basically what we want them to be, right? Mm. So they're designed for us, for us to have ease of use. They're not necessarily there to guide us. And yet... I was interested because it's, you know, I spoke to someone who uh, is a pastor in Silicon Valley uh, and also a former engineer, and he reflected on the fact that it, it was strange to him when he realized that he could command Alexa to turn on the lights. And he realized that that was the first spoken command that God makes in the Bible. Hmm. And he wondered, he, he was like, you know, what is this doing to my soul? It's a very convenient thing, but is it also altering who I am as a person and how I am in relation to others and to my own spirituality? And that's the kind of thing I was trying to pay attention to as I was sitting and submitting myself to the research study. So, as you said, when it comes to these these devices, um, they have pre-programmed answers, and yeah. which, of course, makes me think, who who's pre-programming <laughs> these things? Who is programming the answer to "Is there a God?" or "Do <laughs> do animals have souls?" I mean, these are like monumental questions. What what did you find out when you looked into this? Yeah, so it's fascinating. The default answers, you know, that uh, an Alexa or a Siri will come with. Uh, when you just open them out of the box is usually something to the effect of, sorry, I can't answer that, or um, that's a good question, you know, but mm -hmm. let me direct you to some Google search results, for instance. Um, so that's in, that in, in and of itself is an interesting choice, right? To deflect, to say, no, we cannot answer these questions for you. And even if they direct you to search results, well, some considerations went into the selection of what those results are. Right. And that can have really important effects that I think we should pay attention to. But for the purposes of the study, um, what was interesting was that uh, Shannon had pre-programmed the devices according to everyone's spiritual backgrounds. For So for example, for me, I told him I was raised in a Jewish household, and so he had you know drawn upon Jewish texts and kind of um, evaluated my answers with that in mind. You point to something large here, which is that even if there, there's not a stock answer, th there's still some some sifting of, of mm -hmm. web pages of, of ideas. Uh, do you have any sense of how that's done or what goes into to that process? So basically, over the course course of my reporting, I was speaking with engineers of various faith backgrounds, all of whom had a role in building different kinds of AI applications, you know, whether yeah. it was building a Microsoft application or building an Amazon Go store or working towards um, automated vehicles, you know, all of them had these various 
kind of approaches that were informed by their faith. And they were aware of the fact that what they were generating would shape people's lives um, in small and large ways. And even in the smallest ways, that's still an immense responsibility that they shoulder, which I think was really kind of admirable for them to admit and to think about in a really serious manner. But the story that I kept coming back to was one that I actually came across pretty early in my reporting from a former engineer named Rob Barrett, who was at IBM kind of in the early days of the internet. And he was told by his manager to do the right thing. They were working on building the kind of original privacy settings for an early web browser. And Rob had been tasked with um, deciding how much user data would be logged and would be conveyed from one um, browser to the other. And so this is, you know, potentially a very big issue, a very big thing to be tasked with. And he (laughs) thought about what his manager told him, which was do the right thing. And he thought, well, what does that mean? You know, how much data should be retained, whose data should be retained, how should it be protected and preserved? And of course, now, Privacy is such a huge issue in the tech industry, and in many ways, we're trying to correct the very things that were overlooked in these early days. Um, And so Rob wanted to figure out what the right thing was, and so he left his job at IBM and went on a sabbatical and went to seminary school, and eventually he left tech completely. Did it surprise you when you learned that some of these AI programmers actually had some kind of a, a spiritual background or religious themselves? At first, yes, only because I think my exposure to the tech industry previously was, you know, that of a very stereotypical industry, you know, that it is satirized as being this place where you cannot speak of religion, where religion of any kind is viewed as an atavism. But then, you know, I think if you scratch beneath the the surface in any way, you discover that there are not even just traditional religions, but also all kinds of new ones, new doctrines, new kind of creeds that may not be called religions, but nevertheless act as such. Um, And I think part of what I was trying to do in the piece is just call attention to the fact that that is the case and that these different belief systems exist and that they are shaping our technologies and therefore our future. And just to kind of start a conversation about what that means. How ultimately do you think, you know, the answers that are formed out of an Alexa, how, how could they shape human thinking? Well, I think the most important uh, way they could shape our thinking is um, about how we think about machines, you know, how mm. we think about robots, right? How we treat them. And I think that's kind of an ongoing conversation both among kind of humanists and philosophers and engineers is what are these devices that we're creating Um, do we have obligations to them, you know, and, you know, are they, you know, there are some, there's a reason why you have to say you're not a robot on the internet so many times when you're trying to order something online or, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the biggest kind of open questions, which again, I really think needs to be um, publicly aired. And to do that requires really educating people about what AI is and how these machines are created and what goes into them, you know, Mm. even if it's just saying, this is whose voice Alexa is, and this is why we designed it in this manner. You know, I think that um, there's a lot of room for tech companies to be more transparent um, about what they're creating. 
uh, and that it shouldn't necessarily be left up to groups like AI and Faith, which I profiled in the piece, to do that work for them. Yeah, it makes me think that maybe a device shouldn't even be allowed to answer some of these questions and and instead Mm -hmm. should say, I'm a robot. I'm not a philosopher. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, you know? Totally, totally. But then what do you do when people want to use Alexa to listen to their synagogue services Mm. or their church services, you know? And I think what happened with COVID is with that, this conversation, which was kind of percolating under the surface before the pandemic really kind of came out with full force when people needed to think about, you know, am I allowed to um, participate in a Shabbat service over Zoom when technology is, um, you're not supposed to use technology on Shabbat, you know, and what is the relationship between my practice of faith and my need to access this during this kind of state of exception. Um, And so I think, you know, depending on people's faith traditions, they were answering that in various ways, but um, it really brought to the fore the fact that you can't disentangle um, the faith world and the tech world, you know, like it's already too late. We can't go back. I've been speaking with Linda Kinsler, a doctoral candidate in rhetoric and has previously written about tech and culture. Her piece in the New York Times is called Can Silicon Valley Find God? Linda, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Let's wrap up today's program with what might sound like a funny question. Have you ever been hashtag blessed by the algorithm? Because that's a thing that's actually going around the internet. So this could mean you mysteriously found the best deal on a travel site out of nowhere, or the Instagram god surprised you with a hundred additional likes, or maybe it's the website that gave you the tickets to a concert while it denied thousands of others who signed in at the same time. So what's that emotional experience like? Do you actually kind of feel like you were blessed by the technology? And is there not something kind of quasi-religious or spiritual about this? Beth Singler is closely studying this subject. She's a research fellow in artificial intelligence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Dr. Singler, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you very much for having me on today. Beth, can you talk about how you think that religious or spiritual experiences are kind of being uh, remade or formulated through technology? So a lot of the time, the the presumption is that uh, technology brings with it a sort of form of rationality that does away with religion in, as an irrational entity. Mm. I, I, as an anthropologist, I don't I don't tend to take that particular stance. I see what's happening instead is that religion is renewed and reformed and reshaped by being online. Different ways of approaching religion develop with technology. Uh, different technologies then in themselves get approached as being a religious entity. Uh, faith starts coming into the equation. People trust forms of technology more and more. And as I say, when we try and formulate ways of talking about that, even if individually we don't hold to particular faith positions, we might use theistic or usually monotheistic in the in the contemporary culture uh, ways of understanding the technology, of describing it as being godlike in some way, as having those superhuman abilities that we consider to be godlike, so omniscience, omnibenevolence, hopefully, but sometimes also in our more dystopic stories, sort of the the mass cruelty of of an overwhelming judgmental god as well. Mm. 
Why do you think we as humans are constantly looking for this or, or trying to seek something out through a religious lens? I, I'm curious, what do you think? I think to a certain extent it's the limitations of our language that when we need to talk about something that appears to all extents and purposes in its very non-transparency to be sort of ineffable and mysterious, we then pull on our existing historical cultural context to understand that and give form to it through words we're more familiar with, like God. Um, or the devil in some cases, and demonic interpretations appear as well. So we're, we're coming from particular cultural groups. And of course, that varies around the world. We're not all Western forms, monotheists with uh, uh, our roots in Abrahamic traditions. So there are different ways, uh, even animism as well, that's constantly applied to Eastern cultures appears in Western cultures as well. So we have these deep roots in mythologies and folklore. And these things come out when we start talking about technology that for, for many people in the public domain seems uncertain and mysterious because we don't have that broad digital literacy that tells absolutely everyone what an algorithm is and what a decision-making mm. system is and why why when you go on Facebook, a particular advert appears or why when you upload a video on YouTube, it does well or it doesn't do well. And therefore, we pull then on the language that we already have to explain why one day we had a good day because of the algorithm and one day we had a bad day. So I look at terms like blessed by the algorithm or in some cases, cursed by the algorithm as well. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I want to ask about, is this, is this phrase, blessed by the algorithm. It's something you've really looked at. Talk to me about what that phrase is, where it shows up, and why mm. it's so interesting to you. Well, it's, it's a relatively recent term. I mean, a lot of the work I do is in the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, I drew together a corpus of all the incidents of this term on Twitter that I could find. Some were repeated, some were retweeted. And I, I, I sort of divided them up into where they came from. For some people, this was very much linked to the sense of being in a precarious financial situation, of being in the gig economy, perhaps, if you're a Lyft driver or a Uber driver. But if you had a good day, you might say, I've been blessed by the algorithm today. The algorithm decides what jobs you're offered. Mm -hmm. If you're a content producer or you create podcasts or radio <laughs> programs, if you have a particularly good day in, in how the virality of your content goes because the algorithm has promoted it in particular ways, you decide that's because you've been blessed by the algorithm. Now, there are all very rational reasons why algorithms are created to push particular content over others. It's all human decided, but because it's not transparent, because it's not clear what those decisions are, it then comes, becomes this potential space that we fill with our imaginations and, as I say, draw on theistic conceptions to fill in that uncertainty. It's kind of fascinating just, just sitting there and thinking about this. I mean, for, for you, what kind of interesting questions does, does something like this phrase bring up? Hmm. So a lot of my ethnographic work has been on the formation of more bounded new religious movements. So groups that specifically say we are starting a faith. This is what we believe and this is how we want to present ourselves. So looking at the blessed by the algorithm tweets, there were a few people saying, you know, this is inc increasingly, I think, going to be how we interact with AI. People were saying this is the direction of which our faith is traveling. Then you get people who are expressly saying, I want to develop a new religious movement around artificial intelligence. And the overlap between those two groups is it's, it's a blurred line, basically. And we may well see more religious faiths emerging that want to expressly look at artificial intelligence, either as a deity we've always been expecting or as a deity we create or an omnibenevolent entity that can help us in particular ways. 
And arguably, we've, we've been creeping closer to that in our conceptions of AI for a long time. I, I just want to make sure I understand this. There mm. are people that actually want to create some kind of a religion around AI. This is a thing that's happening? Oh, yes, certainly. There, there are existing new religious movements. Um, some would be within what you broadly call the transhumanist movement. Uh, some of them are very pragmatic about their use of the term religion, that they want to hack religion, to use what's effective about religion as a tool for getting people into ideas, to get people into transhumanist ideas specifically. And then there's been various groups who may have done it for other pragmatic reasons. But you can see with any any interesting new technology, there are emergences of religions that reflect on this technology or use it in particular ways. You know what strikes me as so kind of mysterious about this whole conversation is in, in the kind of the great religious traditions, God was unknowable in mm. a certain sense. It was not created by man. It was mm -hmm. perhaps even, you know, in the most esoteric traditions outside of rational understanding. Mm -hmm. And there's something happening here, which is, and you used the word a minute ago, a man-made God, mm -hmm. right? Something that, that we have created, but perhaps people also see as mysterious, the algorithm still showing up in mysterious ways. It's it's so strange, right? This kind of knowing and unknowable aspect of the same time. Absolutely. And I, I think that's why artificial intelligence is conceived of as an entity fits so readily into the God space that for some people is, is void. They haven't got an existing faith or um, they hadn't considered themselves religious, but then they find in the model of the future that artificial intelligence partakes of sort of the idea that we're going somewhere with it extremely fast progress. They see this as a model that they can get behind and that fits their existing rational ideas. It's not that everyone who thinks about artificial intelligence thinks in exactly the same way as this, but it's, you can see how some of the shapes are familiar if you've looked at the emergence of other new religious movements. Do you think any of this is scary or <laughs> exciting? Or, I mean, how do you as a human make sense of this? <laughs> Me as a human, as an anthropologist studying humans. Okay, I, I yeah, find it, sure. Well, I'm also a human, I think. <laughs> most okay. days, most days, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that even in the most secular spaces of artificial intelligence discourse, you still get these repeating ideas that draw on theistic things. So it's it's something within... Our, our humanity that means we seek for these ideas of superior entities that can guide us, protect us, look after us, be they one or many or plural, you know, there's there's a variety of responses to that. So I find it utterly fascinating that we're still telling ourselves particular stories, and in this case, particular stories about technology. Mm -hmm. And as you said, in a, in a world that feels increasingly secular, people are craving something, right? Something bigger mm -hmm. than themselves. And if it shows up on Facebook and Instagram or, or you know, helps you do your job, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, uh, to, to associate yourself with it. Yes, absolutely. And there's some wonderful science fiction that sort of gets there before with this idea of, you know, the, the artificial, artificial overlords who can provide the things that we want. But I think it's also worth thinking about how religion doesn't just fill fill uh, a need it fills um, aesthetic desires as well so the uh, the idea of artificial intelligence is in itself exciting and new and cool and you know it's full of various flavors of hype so we we get attracted to those sorts of ideas they have charisma 
even if there's not necessarily a specific leader who's saying, you know, now there shall be an AI religion in, in the kind of classical conception of charismatic authority. But the idea of AI itself has charisma. I've been speaking with Beth Singler, Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to read your review. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.